So we have here a box of chocolate truffles and a bottle of Riga Black Balsam, generously supplied by the Latvian Embassy of London. I'm just going to crack it open. I'm not sure if you heard that or not, but I've got it with some ice. Ooh. Is it very sweet? It's not actually that sweet. Yeah, it's it's quite nice actually. And I've got my truffles. Three flavours, coconut, tiramisu and cheesecake. I'll go for the tiramisu. God, they really did spoil us. Yeah. Mmm, <laughs> <laughs> this is gorgeous. I'm relaxing into this nicely. Well, hopefully I don't relax too much. This is 30%. <laughs> so I think we, we best get going. Okay. So, um, welcome back to the post-Soviet press pods 10 minutes on, the series where we cover the basics you need to know about the countries of the foremost Soviet Union, their culture, history and current affairs, all in roughly 10 minutes. I'm Natalie Sawyer. And I'm Tom King. Today, we're looking at the final of the three Baltic states to be covered in this series, Latvia. These chocolates are so rich, (laughs) (laughs) I can't articulate my words. Can you start by telling our listeners where Latvia is located, Natalie? Yeah, sure. So as one of the three Baltic states, Latvia is nestled between Estonia to the north and Lithuania to the south, bordered by Russia to the east and Belarus to the southeast. It's a tiny country spanning just 64,589 kilometres exactly, not even a fifth of Germany. And how many people live there? 1.9 million people. But if you go to the World Bank website and take a look at the demographics, you'll notice a steady fall since 1990. Back then, it numbered 2.6 million. Wow, that is one baby bustle, right? What's behind it? Well, um, at the fall of the USSR in 1991, many ethnic Russians returned to Russia. These days, low demographics are chiefly driven by a combination of high immigration and low birth rate. Latvians tend to have one or two children because it's difficult financially. Then again, it's not as if they were unique in Europe on that count, I think. What about the uh, country's ethnic makeup? Um, So ethnic Latvians account for around 60% of the population, and Russians, as you'd expect after 200 years of occupation, are the largest minority group, accounting for around 25%. The rest is a melting pot including Belarusians, Ukrainians, Poles, Lithuanians, Estonians, Jews, Tatars and Roma. Wow, that's really quite diverse. Yes, so coexistence hasn't always been idyllic. Latvians have long resented Russians for not integrating or learning their language. The government attempted to settle the question of Russians' place in Latvia with a referendum in 2014 on adding Russian as an official state language. Even though there was strong support for this from Russians in the southeast of the country, Latvia voted no. Or rather, ne. Why don't you brief our lovely <laughs> listeners on a few Latvian phrases? Okay, um, I'll try not to blow little ducks on this one and take it away at wind speed. Uh, I'll be honest, you've lost me there. To blow little ducks means to talk nonsense. Pust pilitis. And another very Latvian way of describing something done quickly is to say it was done at wind speed. Veja atruma. Um, have you got anything a bit more practical? Well, um... Labrit is good morning. I like it because it's basic, but can also be used to express outrage. Like, say you forgot to tell your boss about an important event and she discovers it on the day. She would go, Labrit, as in, now you tell me. It can also be used to shame someone for their ignorance. What? You didn't know Latvia is part of the EU? Labrit. 
Ah, a bit like a duh, hello. Yeah, exactly. But no Latvians will be able to say labrit to our listeners if they stick with this podcast up until the end. So, Tom, um, how about a little history? Well, where to begin? Records show uh, Baltic ancestors of the Latvian people settling on the eastern coast of the Baltic Sea as far back as 3000 BC. Apparently, they traded regularly with ancient Rome and the Byzantine Empire alike. So they've been around for a fair while then? They really have. I find it pretty difficult to grasp quite how long ago 3000 BC is, actually. So, four distinct tribes soon took shape in Latvia and still make up its ethnic core today. The Curonians, Salonians, Semigallians and the Latgalians. In fact, the name Latvia is taken from this last tribe, the Latgalians. Inhabitants native to Latvia existed without too much external interference right up until the 12th century. That's right. And I think this is actually a really important thing to emphasise before we cover Latvia's various occupations. Agreed. So, as you hinted at, Latvia has had no shortage of occupations. Following failed attempts to convert the population, Pope Celestine III called for a crusade against pagans in northern Europe in 1193. Germans from the Holy Roman Empire were only too happy to oblige and conquered large parts of modern-day Latvia and Estonia, resulting in the creation of the crusader state known as Old Livonia. After its formation, there were various wars over who got to control Livonia, with modern-day Latvia changing hands between Poland, Lithuania, and then the Swedish Empire after that. That's quite a lot of invading. Yep, and I'm afraid it does keep on going. After the third partition of Poland in 1795, the entirety of modern-day Latvia eventually became incorporated into the Russian Empire, an arrangement which lasted all the way up until 1918. Though Latvia did go on to enjoy a bout of independence between then and 1939, right? Absolutely. Although, I'm not sure about the term enjoy, as independence in 1918 led to a three-way civil war between the provisional government, headed by Farmers' Union leader Carlos Umalis, who was backed by the British and the French, the Latvian Soviet government, led by Peter Estuka, which was in turn backed by the Red Army, and the German Baltic Landeswehr, under General Rudiger von Goltz, which was this kind of patchwork corps of local militias, Freikorps and regular troops. That's right. They were really up against it, weren't they? With the Red Army initially sweeping across almost all of Latvia and the Baltic Landeswehr pushing north, Ulmanis was forced to seek refuge on a British warship in 1919. Eventually, Estonian and Latvian forces pushed the Red Army back, allowing them to focus on beating the Germans. I'm missing a lot of interesting details here, but in the end, this resulted in the German abandonment of the region by December 1919. Can you tell us anything about what panned out once they won? So, once Ormanis's government regained power, the foundations for a Latvian republic were laid. A constitution was written in 1922 for a republic with a president and a single chamber parliament of 100 members, the Saema. Another interesting fact, women were allowed to vote from 1918, before the constitution was even established. But all was not rosy in the republic, even with the foreign enemies ousted. There was a great deal of domestic division. And so, in 1934, the lack of a stable government prompted Ulmanis to stage a bloodless coup, which brings us up to World War II, I believe. Yeah, we're getting there. So, like a number of post-Soviet countries, the infamous Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact in August 1939 kind of sealed the fate of the Latvians. 
Right after that, the USSR launched a full-scale invasion of the country and ran elections featuring only pro-Soviet candidates. This new Zayma voted for the incorporation of Latvia into the USSR in July 1940. How surprising. Where, bar the temporary Nazi occupation between 1941 and 1944, it remained until independence in August 1991. So one of the interesting things about the Latvian independence movement, I thought, was that it was one of the few Soviet republics that the Gorbachev regime attempted to, ultimately unsuccessfully, regain control of by force, deploying tanks there in January 1991. I also find it pretty fascinating that the impressive-looking 42-metre freedom monument in Riga was never torn down by the Soviets, as they instead attempted to change its meaning to one that was pro-Soviet, albeit with limited success. They changed the three stars being held up to represent the Baltic states instead of the three main tribes of old Latvia, with the woman holding them up representing Russia rather than the figure of liberty originally intended. As a result, the monument was the site of a great many independence protests in the twilight years of the Soviet Union. Yes, it must have been quite the site. Um, I would definitely recommend looking it up or visiting the monument if you have the chance. Definitely. But what's happened in Latvia since its independence? So Latvia achieved its goals of joining both NATO and the European Union in 2004 under President Vaira Vikiv Freiburger and currently enjoys a great deal of democratic freedoms and an advanced high-income economy. It became a member of the Organisation for Economic Cooperation and Development in 2016. That sounds like the beginning of a happy ending. But on to the news. So there's a few interesting news stories going on in Latvia as of late. How about we talk about each one? Yeah, sure. Um, so Latvia has been struggling with rampant money laundering for some time now. The country's banks played a key role in whitewashing funds from Russia and the former USSR before they went on to be transferred to secure offshore accounts. Back in 2007-2008, America's Financial Crimes Enforcement Network received no fewer than 18,000 notifications known as suspicious activity reports. By comparison, there were only 10,200 for Switzerland and 4,200 for Estonia within that same period. Even for a Baltic business hub, that is an insane amount of laundering for such a small state, to be honest. It is, um, but all is not lost. Efforts have been made in Latvia to remedy this issue somewhat successfully. Latvian authorities narrowly escaped the so-called grey list by the Financial Action Task Force, which identifies countries slacking on money laundering regulations. Latvia is trying to distance itself from its past, and today foreign investors are required to follow much more stringent guidelines than those normally required under EU law. There is still room for improvement, though, as the complex and varied nature of the financial institutions involved means it's not really the kind of issue to be solved overnight. Sounds like they've really been trying to clean up their act and hang those involved in money laundering out to dry. <laughs> um, Tom, we had agreed no puns. <laughs> okay, I'll stop. Anyway, on to my story. I had something a bit less heavy. Recent rewilding efforts in Latvia. Can you explain to our listeners what rewilding is? So, rewilding is the restoration of an area of land to its natural uncultivated state, as it was before agriculture became developed. Wild animals, by grazing, restore wild meadows from bushes that would otherwise replace farmland. 
Latvian efforts at rewilding have resulted in thriving herds of wild horses, oxen and bison brought back from the brink of extinction. They even redirected the Dviet River just to restore the habitat of the corncrake bird. So inspiring. So who funds all of this? The Latvian government organises and funds a lot of it in cooperation with the World Wildlife Fund, or WWF. EU funding has also been pretty instrumental in continuing these efforts and in allowing Latvia to sustainably continue them into the future. It's really uplifting to see Latvia lead on this, uh, and I definitely recommend to our listeners look up some pictures of the results of Latvia's rewilding efforts. There are some amazing shots of the wild cornic horses in their natural habitat. As much as I would love to spend hours chatting about the ins and outs of this fascinating Baltic state over black balsam and chocolate truffles, I'm afraid that is all we have time for. I'm afraid you're right. It's called 10 Minutes on Latvia for a reason. Thanks to all those who tuned in and to Dr. Una Bergman for being the academic supervisor for this episode. Yes. Thanks, everyone. See you next time.